that for aesthetics. All right, let's bow our heads, please, and we'll ask for God's blessing upon the reading and upon the hearing of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would, by your spirit, open our minds afresh to understand the text that's before us, to have insight as to what's going on with Jesus and the people around him, but also, God, that we ask that you would speak to our hearts so that through your Holy Spirit we're changed by what he authored 2,000 years ago. This word, your word, it's inspired by him. And so please let it do your work upon us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Boy, this is odd. I feel like I still need to lean in. So I'm used to this. All right, for context, you'll recall from last week that Jesus, he'd been preaching by the Sea of Galilee, still in his ministry's early days. The crowds were pressing in upon him so much that he actually had to get into a boat and preach to them from offshore. He then went up onto a mountain, which overlooks the Sea of Galilee, and he spoke there. He spoke with 12 of his inner circle of disciples. And it was there on that mountain that Jesus appointed them as apostles, as one who would be sent, men who would be sent with the authority of the sender to preach the gospel. Our text this morning, it picks up from there after that meeting on the mountain. Mark chapter 3, we'll begin with verse 20, and I'll continue through verse 35. The word of God. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. All right. The first verse of this text, it tells us that Jesus has come down from the mountain, a mountain, 
after having spent some one-on-twelve time with his disciples. Verse 20, it says that he's now home again. And that home is meaning Simon Peter's home, which Jesus was using as a sort of, as a sort of base camp headquarters for his young ministry up to this point. Mark, our author in Mark's gospel, he continues to make it clear to us that the crowds were always seeking Jesus. And so we might as well get used to this idea. Whenever Jesus is healing and repairing and restoring, at least physically, he's in high demand. Verse 20, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is the same home where Jesus had taken up temporary residence in Mark's chapter 1, verse 29, after casting out a demon. Out of the man, you'll, you'll remember, in the synagogue, Jesus went with Simon and Andrew to their home, and he healed Simon's mother-in-law. And then after sundown, the crowds were gathering at Simon's door. We don't know, by the way, if these crowds were well-behaved or if there was a sort of mob mentality about them. But when the Bible says crowds, it's not exaggerating. There were a lot of people. These people, they frequented Simon's house often. They were looking for Jesus. They knew the address, and they were persistently there, vying for the attention of the Lord. So much so, in this case, he couldn't even eat. Couldn't even have a meal in peace. But then... We need to note something beyond Mark's point, that there were so many people, that there was so much distraction brought on by the crowd that Jesus couldn't even have a meal. Given this fact that Jesus was healing many, we shouldn't be surprised at the crowds. That draws a crowd. However, what is striking is that the response of Jesus and his family, Jesus is big news. The Capernaum community, word gets around fast. It's small, maybe not unlike Covington. Everybody knew what Jesus was doing, including his family. They were not in the dark about what he was doing, and it concerned them. But we should understand, first of all, who is Jesus' family? We're going to talk about that extensively in a couple of weeks. We know at least that his mom was Mary. We know that his dad was Joseph. We know that his dad was Joseph, and we know that Jesus was Mary's firstborn. And so we conclude that the siblings of Jesus were his younger brothers and sisters. It's possible that Joseph was an older man when he became engaged to Mary. Here I am leaning in. Got to not do that. When he became engaged to Mary, it is possible that Joseph was an older man, perhaps a widower. We don't know. The scriptures do imply that Mary was a widow at the cross when Jesus committed her into the care of his apostle John, the one that Jesus loved. We also don't know if Joseph had any children from a prior marriage, but if he did, there's no mention of them having to register in the city of David from the Caesar's census. There's no mention of Joseph's sons or daughters being with him during that journey to Bethlehem or at the birth of Jesus in the stable. So, in light of that silence, 
in light of all that, there is a possibility that Jesus may have had some half-siblings from Joseph's prior marriage. But in that same light, there's a far larger possibility that Mary herself bore sons and daughters after Jesus' birth. Nevertheless, Matthew 13, 55, Matthew's Gospel, it informs us that Jesus had brothers and sisters. It says this, Is not this the carpenter's son? That would be Joseph's son. Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and are all and are not all his sisters with us? I had to count all that up. At a minimum, that's six siblings. It's pretty clear. And by the way, such a list should set aside that Mary remained a virgin all of her life. In case you were not aware of this, the Roman Catholic Church did and still does believe that Mary died a virgin. All right. What we have here in Mark 3, verse 21, is the family of Jesus, at least some immediate family members within the household that Jesus grew up in, maybe even shared a bed with. That's that's the way they did that back in the day. But these immediate family members, they thought he was crazy. Just like in describing Ernest T. Bass, right? Sheriff Andy Taylor called him curious, called him a troublemaker. But you know what Barney Fife called him. He's a nut. Verse 21, that's what Jesus' family was calling him. He's, he's out of his mind. We've got to go to the shepherd's crook and get him out of there. Maybe save our own reputation. Verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Right? That's an intervention about to happen there. We're going to look more closely at this idea of family in a couple of Sundays, as I said So I want you to hang on to that verse 21 because it links with what's going to happen later in verse 31 when his mother and brother show up at Simon's house asking for him. We then come to verse 22. And this starts for us a new scene. It's like a camera cuts away from the family drama and with this new scene enters some teachers of the law, scribes, They're faced with the reality that Jesus is performing genuine miracles. He's not a charlatan. These are genuine miracles. Acts of healing that are clearly supernatural. This man, Jesus, he's restoring deformed, decrepit, and non-functioning body parts. He makes hands and legs work like new. Diseases, he removes them. And demons, he commands them and he casts them out of people so that they're restored to order, so that they're in their right mind. They're rational again. And so these scribes, they cannot dismiss the obvious, but nor will they acknowledge the truth. They're not going to do it. They hate Jesus. They're his enemy. They will not give Jesus the honor of agreeing with his own testimony that he is God in the flesh. They, the scribes, and their bosses, the Pharisees, they're offended at Jesus for not praising them. 
Jesus doesn't lift them up as the paragon of the society's virtue, right? The obeyers of the law, the teachers of the law. And so they actually hate him. Unless you think that's too strong of a conclusion, then I point you to another verse, back to verse 6 of the same chapter. Verse 6 says this. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against them, against him, rather Jesus, how to destroy him. Right? So they're planning how to destroy Jesus. That was right after he had healed the, the man with the withered hand. That's a pretty good example of hate, wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? They want to ruin Jesus, destroy his message, and destroy the man. But they can't. They can't do that simply by disclaiming what Jesus has done. For again, his miracles, they are super obvious. People see them. And they hear the testimonies of those who are healed. And so these Pharisees, these law teachers, these hypocrites, they cannot, deny, they cannot deny that such miracles are actually happening. But they can throw a curveball to the people. They can pervert how they're happening. It's not God doing these things, they say. It's Satan. Satan's the one doing them. Verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Now, Beelzebul, that's that's another name for Satan, the demon worshipped by the Philistines in 2 Kings, Baal, Beelzebul. But that conclusion, says Jesus, it makes no sense. It's not only humanly illogical and irrational, but it's not even supernaturally possible. Jesus rebukes their claim here in verse 23. He says, and he called them to him and said to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Now, this strong man, that's Satan. Jesus is saying that Satan, as strong as he is, is still inferior to God. That Jesus, as God himself, is able to perform these miracles, in fact, because he has authority over Satan. That he's bound up the strong man. Jesus' parable, it teaches that that must logically be the case. It has to be. He wouldn't be able to do these miracles otherwise. He would be ineffective. Either Satan would be destroying Satan, which makes no sense, for demonic destroyers cannot go against their very nature. We talked about that last week. You can't act outside of your nature. They can't perform wholesome acts of creation. Or, another option, Satan would be stronger than God. 
that makes no sense. That's not true. Neither of those options are even possible. And so you scribes, you teachers of the law, you got it wrong again, says Jesus. Only God can effectively fight Satan. Only the one who's stronger than the strong man can plunder the house of evil. That's what Jesus is doing by these miracles. He's overcoming evil. He's healing destruction. He's restoring order to chaos. And only God can forgive sins. And only God can fix and repair and restore their deadly effects. And so God, Jesus says, must be the one who's doing these miracles. Jesus must be God. I'm going to wind down this sermon on this next point. I don't think... Yeah, I don't think there's any way that we can unpack all the points on the family, which is verses 31 through 35 this week. Um, We'll push them to later this month. So after putting the scribes in their place with an argument of logic as to who he is, Jesus then warns them. Verse 28. Truly, I say to you, All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. These scribes, they were accusing Jesus, the second person of the Godhead. They were accusing this man This deity, this God, they were accusing him of saying that he is Satan or of Satan, that he has an unclean spirit. They were ascribing the works of Jesus to Satan. You might think that's an indictment worth a lightning bolt, right? I mean, there's a strike these these accusers, these scribes, poof, be gone. But no. To that hugely false and ludicrous accusation, Jesus actually demonstrates a response of love. He tells them a truth that they have never heard. This is an example, by the way, of loving your enemy. Jesus warns them in love. He warns them. He says that all sins, no matter how great, may be forgiven, except one. And you, scribes, are really dangerously close to getting to that one. Be careful. He tells them that they have come perilously close to committing it. The sin that ascribes the saving acts of the Holy Spirit. The regeneration of souls. The renewing of the heart that gives them eternal life through conviction of repentance. Jesus says that if you give that saving credit to Satan instead of to the Holy Spirit, then that false testimony is so egregious, it's so extreme, it's so far outside of God that it will never be forgiven, ever. It's an eternal sin that ascribes the Holy Spirit's work to the chief enemy of God, Satan. These scribes, they accuse the man Jesus of being in Satan's camp, of being powerful and authoritative by the authority of Satan. Those are external observations that the scribes got wrong. 
But Jesus warns. He warns that if they accuse the internal testimony produced by the Holy Spirit to being the work of the devil's spirit, then they've gone too far. I've counseled those sometimes who have a fear that they've committed this sin. But I tell them that those who have committed this unforgivable sin, they have no more conscience left in them that would be sensitive to the things of God. They are actually truly anathema if they've committed this sin, and they're given over to the devil for his work. And so you should know, Edgemont, and person who's being counseled, you should know that if you ever worry about such things, then you haven't committed such a sin. That's proof. Your worry is actually proof that you have not. Your concern over your own soul, your concern for the sensitivity to being right with God, these things evidence the fact that you're not a lost cause to the eternal fires of hell reserved to the devil for the devil and his angels. It's described in Matthew 25, verse 41. I said this would be the end of that narrative, and so I'll do that now. We're going to pick up verse 31 next time in a couple of weeks. But you may be asking yourself, so what? It's a good story. It's 2,000 years ago. So what? How's that affect me today? Well, to be fair, maybe this historical record of Jesus and his interaction with the scribes doesn't mean anything to you. Okay? But also, to be fair, it should. For this passage, it reveals that there are two kingdoms. Two kingdoms that have nothing in common. They're polar opposites. One is pure truth. And one is pure lies. One is total light. And the other is void of any illumination. It only has total darkness. One creates and heals while the other destroys and kills. One calls us to look for a, to a king for our blessings. And the other calls us to look to ourselves as our own king. It points to yourself as your own provider. It looks to yourself as your own primary strength and your own primary righteousness. And because these two kingdoms are in stark contrast and conflict with each other, the passage that we just read, inspired by the Holy Spirit, begs you to evaluate your citizenship. Which kingdom are you in? And that should matter to you. I think I can safely say in this congregation, I see a couple of younger folks, one upstairs and one downstairs, but most of us were in our teens in 1979 when Bob Dylan, I think Ann probably knows some lyrics to that man's songs, when Bob Dylan got it right. In at least one of his songs, he said in 79, you got to serve somebody. Maybe the devil, maybe the Lord, but you are going to have to serve somebody. There's nothing about this man, Jesus, nothing that he says that's remotely misleading or untrue. Unless you missed it, let me show this to you again. Jesus declared that all sins will be forgiven the children of man. 
right? Verse 28, all sins. Do you have any sin? Here I am leaning in again. Do you have any sin? Of course you do. What do you plan to do with that fact? Maybe keep it to yourself. But that doesn't solve anything. And you can't forgive yourself. You can't make yourself clean. You can't purge yourself of guilt. Is the king Beelzebul of that kingdom? Is he going to help you? Is he going to remove your guilt somehow? No, I don't think so. He's the one who gave it to you to begin with. He wants to heap more on you. He wants you to sin more. He wants you to hate more. He wants you to have more lies and more deception, more ignorance, more distance from your creator, God. Or you can give that sin over to the other king, to the one who rules the kingdom of God. You can be free from guilt by having your sin given over to the one who died for it. To take it away from you. To the one who has authority to forgive you of it. To the one who says that all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Now the king who does that is Jesus. He has bound the strong man, Satan. His kingdom will plunder that strong man's house. He'll win. He already has one. And that's your answer to so what? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your son did your work. He preached your message without compromise. He loved. He told the truth. He was and is the truth. And so we thank you for him. May his words, his teaching, his forgiveness, and his love, may it abide in us. In his name, the name of Christ we pray. Amen.